Thank you, Kristen. Trust in Jesus, that is all. Jim, thanks for that great, encouraging beginning to our service. I guess it's the Lord's prerogative to put those that are his servants in uncomfortable positions to bring the message of Christ to somebody, huh? And I know, uh, Jim, perhaps, maybe not, but I know for me, when it's been that case for me, I've had to, after I gave out the gospel, I had to ask the Lord for forgiveness for being such a grumbler before and realize that he put me in there for some specific purpose. So what a blessing that is. Thank you for that encouraging story. Um, and I'm glad you guys are back safely. I'm sure not uh, enjoying the cold weather uh, leaving Hawaii. For those who'd like to participate in junior church, you can be dismissed at this time. You see in your bowls, and we've tried to make that clear, this is the point in time where if you'd like your little one all the way up through sixth grade in uh, age-appropriate service, you can dismiss them now to the foyer where their teachers will take them downstairs and you can pick them up at the close of our service up here. Hope that you were in the Word this week. If you have not been in the Word and would like to study through the Bible in a year, this is a great time of year to begin that. You find those trifolds out on the welcome table. Take that with you. Start at today's date. Work your way through the Bible week by week, day by day, as the Lord would have you do that, and the richness of that Bible reading will be yours. We are in a continuing study through the Word of God, through particularly through First and Second Corinthians. Uh, we've entitled the study, God's Plan for a Healthy Church as it takes on numerous things in, this, in uh, the New, this New Testament church in Corinth which were not healthy and desires to bring them into a place of health and a place where they can glorify God and be powerful in the giving out of the gospel. So we're working our way through. We're particularly now in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, and it is uh, an opportunity for us really to study through. You can get that slide up there. That'd be great, Todd. Um, we're going to continue uh, our study in chapter 3, and as we come to chapter 3, uh, really verses 18 through 23, uh, we really find ourselves in the midst of a section on division in the church. The Corinthian church, among other things, had a severe problem in this area of division. We just call it the disease of division because it's very contagious. Once someone is uh, discontent, that spreads pretty quickly. It's not an uncommon problem. And so sometimes we're going through these passages and they'll be taught for repair purposes, and other times, they'll be taught for prevention purposes, as the case may be. And as we began this section last week, we identified the passages, one of several passages, that deal with a very important future reality for every believer, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. And over the last two weeks, we've been taking a very close look at that, and we're going to just have a quick overview today because we have other passages now we need to move on to. But it's so significant uh, that I want to make sure that we get it in our mind, exactly the situation, the, exactly the, the parameters of this judgment seat of Christ, so that we understand it clearly, because uh, it's of such great importance. I'd like you, if you would, to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to pick up in verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse 17. We're going to pause and then uh, do a little bit of a review, as is our habit, and then we'll move on to our new passages for uh, today. Now, this is an event, this uh, judgment seat of Christ is an event that is described for us in a construction illustration. And you're going to see that, and if you've been with us, you know that. But look at verse 10, if you would, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, verse 12. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, verse 13, each man's work will become evident, 
For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 14. If any man's work is which he has built which has built on remains, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Let's pause right there. Now, we saw that although the passage initially is addressing Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, because that is the immediate context of these passages, and the division that was in the church around Paul and Apollos and Cephas, although Paul doesn't mention specifically the problem, he just says because there's a problem, that's a problem for the church, uh, we saw, though, as we looked at this parallel passages that we see, in, particularly in Paul's second letter here we're going to look at, and some other places in the New Testament, uh, that this event, this judgment seat of Christ, uh, described in construction terms, really applies and takes in a very broad uh, path, enough to include every believer. Not just Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, not just those who serve in uh, eldership in the church, but all believers. And really the idea there, to sum it up, the apostolic foundation has been laid, and in construction terms, really, you look out on a lot when you're first born again with a foundation laid on that lot. So a flat foundation, which is going to be built on by construction material, which we're going to see described for us. Everybody builds on that foundation. And though not all of us are to the same degree of building on that foundation, we're all building on it because each one of us has a ministry. So a number of ha you have ministries in certain areas, and you build on that foundation uh, just like everyone else does. And even more specifically, those to whom Paul addresses are building on the foundation of Christ, which implies salvation. So this is foundation laid. Uh, Paul said that apost apostolic foundation was laid by him and by the other apostles. And then this foundation now in your life is, is this uh, firm foundation upon which you build uh, your spiritual house. Every believer has been building, as we said last time, since salvation and will continue to build on the foundation of Christ laid for them at redemption. So when you came to Christ, you began building whether you knew it or not, and you continue to build until your life on earth is done. And every believer has exactly the same building materials, we saw this last time, uh, available to them, really unlimited resources with which to build. So you have the same resources, uh, the same power, the same plan, the same foundation as every other believer. Now look at verse 12. Paul says this, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, pause right there. So according to verse 12, as we saw last time, you can build with precious stones, and we saw that that is likely the word costly stone, which probably refers to granite or marble, and not necessarily to a gemstone, although it could, but because this is building material, costly stone would likely be those types of materials and things like that, granite, marble, slate, tile, those kinds of things which last. So a great solid granite marble thing overlaid with gold or silver, that'd be a good building, a lasting structure, a beautiful structure for a spiritual house. But some Christians are using, as the, the scripture says, uh, hay and straw and wood. And hay, we saw last time, is used to mix with mud to make bricks, so the cornerstone framework or wood faced with mud brick, and so uh, straw is used to thatch a roof instead of using perhaps slate or tile. And so as we hold with our understanding that there's no judgment for sin here at this judgment seat of Christ, we're not talking about things done that were sinful. Those were all judged on the cross, okay? So no sin here. We're not judging for sin. We're judging for uh, the way that you've lived your life. Now, God's going to look at these two dwellings, the wood, hay, and stubble uh, building. And of course, we saw last time that's not evil. It's just worthless because it won't withstand the test. It doesn't have eternal value. So it's not going to last past the testing time. It's just a zero sum. The builder is a believer because the foundation is the same, but the building itself differs from believer to believer. And so it isn't really fitting, as we said, to put a mud house 
on the foundation of Christ when you could have built with gold and silver and granite and marble and slate and tile and all those things that last. Okay, now, as we said now, only the Lord can correctly evaluate the house. And, uh, however, he gives us some clues as we go through these passages that can give us a renewed sense of priority and some personal evaluation. So, in other words, we know what's coming and we know how the Lord looks at it so we can be aware of how we're building on this foundation. All right? Now, Jesus is going to look at what we do what we build with, and what we do with uh, those building materials. Now, last time, and we'll just do this quickly, we saw four areas of true evaluation. Labor was the first area. And just quickly, uh, where the Christian life is producing building material. And we saw 1 Corinthians 3.8, and I'm not going to go through these passages for time, but in 1 Corinthians 3.8, we saw that there's uh, labor, and this labor is the planting of seeds of the gospel and the watering of the plants of, of discipleship. That's that labor that the Lord measures. The more that you're giving yourself to do that, and those that work hardest in that area lay up gold, silver, costly stone. Those who are engaged in his business are working together with God and promoting the purposes of his glory, which is the salvation of people and the sanctification of people. And people can really be busy about a lot of stuff, uh, and, and all around their home or all around their job place are people who've never been witnessed to or on an airplane to Hawaii or wherever it happens to be. And you'll miss or, or take that opportunity and so you can get busy about a lot of stuff, but just miss the opportunity to do these things. And so when you're missing that, you're laying up with wood, hay, and straw, because that labor of witnessing and that discipling is one of the God's measuring. And when you're doing that, you're choosing your building material. Second thing we saw was motive, a very important factor in all the things that we do in the Christian life, motive. It relates really to action, how you spend your time. But from 1 Corinthians 4, 5, and once again, we won't go back there. You can just note this and look at it later if you missed it. But where we saw God is going to bring true evaluation to your motives. Everything you want to keep secret is going to be revealed. It's all going to be clear. He's going to keep track of two things, particularly from this passage. Things hidden, kryptos, that's the Greek. Things that uh, somebody wants to keep sealed. Somebody wants to keep away from other people. And that could be good things. Uh, that could be anonymous gifts. That could be uh, diligent prayer for someone. It could be uh, respectful actions towards someone, thoughtful, prayerful consideration of someone. It, it, all hidden. Nobody knows it. Under the radar. Uh, and so the Lord's going to bring all that out. It's going to be clear. It could be bad, of course. Things hidden, disrespectful thoughts, selfish, jealous, unkind, self-talk, those kinds of things that are hidden. Uh, the Lord says that's going to be made clear. So all used for building your house. It's all going to be known. It's all going to be tried. And the second word there that we saw was the, the word motive, uh, the Greek noun for counsels. It refers to the heart. The motives of the heart, which we know from the scriptures, is a place which is the seat of the emotion. And so the idea is that the Lord's going to judge how you really feel about something. That's the issue. Not whether or not you did it, but how you felt about how you did it or what you did. So when you do something totally then and supremely for the glory of God, what kind of building material would that be? That would be gold. That would be uh, costly stone. That would be those kinds of things, right? And that's a motive. See, something totally for the glory of God. And God knows what you secretly think about. He knows what you say to yourself about it when you're doing it. So he's evaluating all those types of things. And you may do a deed that looks like gold on the outside, but the motive, of course, that the Lord knows is in your heart with stubble and your secret thoughts about it are hay, uh, then that's what you build with, and that won't last. Thirdly, we saw that conduct was another way the Lord translates action into building material. In particular, from 2 Corinthians 5.10, we saw that uh, parallel passage here from uh, the passages there in 1 Corinthians that have to do with the judgment seat of Christ. And here it actually uses the word. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, all these other factors we just talked about still apply because we know the parallel passages indicate that. 
So here, though, it's the things done physically and the way we live our life, the day-to-day -day conduct of our life, if you will, the putting to death, the deeds of the flesh, those kinds of things on a regular basis is wood, hay, straw, or gold, silver, and costly stone. And those two words, good or bad, don't let that throw you off, okay? Those words in context are adjectives describing the works of a believer. Agathos, the things that are excellent. Folos, the things that are worthless, all right? So not bad in the sense that it's sinful because there's no judgment for sin, again, at the judgment seat of Christ. That's judged on the cross. So it has to do with whether or not uh, what you did was good uh, and what was worthless. What was worthless then is burned up. There's no reward for it. So very consistent then as Paul teaches through. And the last thing we saw was ministry. It's a very broad concept. And once again, the applications here are much broader and much more intense than we have time to look at uh, on a uh, one Sunday message. But just in particular, it has to do with the, uh, the way of build, laying up building material, particularly when we function with our spiritual gifts. For, from 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, we saw that the use of your spiritual gifts is really the supreme way that God wants to use you. And your biggest blessing from obedience is going to be found when you're functioning in that way. So using your spiritual gifts inside the body of Christ, which is God gives those spiritual gifts, as we looked at, uh, to benefit and edify the body. The way you function there, the fact that you are functioning there, is the way that you lay up uh, building material that is gold and silver and costly snow. In particular, Romans 12, verse 11, measures effort along with obedience. And we looked at that when we looked at Romans chapter 12. Remember, it said, not lagging in behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So how you approach your ministry is the way you lay up the type of building that you're going to lay up. So you approach your, your ministry from diligence, from fervency, uh, then you're laying up gold, silver, costly stones. You're approaching the, uh, your ministry with kind of a slack attitude. It doesn't matter if I go. It doesn't matter if I don't go. That kind of thing. If I show up late, it doesn't matter. All that kind of stuff. See, that built, even though you're doing the work, you're really laying up in your building, uh, as, as the scripture indicates for us, those things which won't last. All right? Now, 1 Peter 2.19, again, measures the ministry in, in difficult times. And we looked at that at length last time, so I won't do it again. Just this, as the Lord measures even difficulty in ministry, and the way you manage that, uh, the Lord then, you're showing the Lord that you're laying up costly stone and, wood, uh, and gold and, and uh, silver or wood, hay, and straw. So managing ministry in difficult times. And we looked at all those things. You can catch up with that online if you'd like. Now, look back at verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3. Each man's work will become evident... For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the day just refers to this day, this judgment seat of Christ. The day is going to show it, because it's going to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So there's coming a day then, very clearly, just to sum this up, where everybody's work is going to be tested. Wood, hay, star are going to burn. Gold, silver, and marble and granite are not going to burn. Every believer's work is going to be tested, so they can see what's left. Why? Verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on remains... What's the rest of it? He'll receive a reward. So this is based on reward. So the judgment seat of Christ, in essence, has as its focus reward for a life well spent. And you may, at that judgment seat, have much of your house left. And there's going to be many people like that. Or you may only have a little piece of precious stone and a little hunk of gold left on the foundation when the fire is done and God will say, here's your reward in relation to what's left. Verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, He'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And God knows when you did it correctly, even if you don't. And certainly others will not have a clear view of that either, whether you did it correctly or not, and not even a clear view of their own action. 
And God is going to evaluate it, and you'll be rewarded. And then we looked at the way God will reward uh, by taking a look at crowns in the New Testament. And we won't look at that again today because it's a great study in and of itself. But five crowns, I'll mention them briefly in just a minute, five crowns that relate to uh, what is left of that spiritual building. And they, they connected very well together. And so th the issue really is this. We looked at the way God's going to reward, and if you didn't build well, then you're going to suffer loss. But we saw there that you're not going to suffer the loss of salvation. Uh, and the greatest majority, perhaps, of your life's work is going to come down, but you will still be uh, there and uh, saved and have your robe of righteousness. So there may be a, a great loss, there may be very little loss, and no doubt on the surface, as we ended last time, no doubt on the surface, just examine there, no believer would immediately think that they would be the one to lose everything, okay? So keep that in mind. You don't want to be self-deceived. Because almost every believer would think, well, I did it with pure motives, and I did the, the work that was hard, and I, and I did it with fervency and diligency of spirit, and I didn't self-talk in a negative way, and all of those kinds of things, see? And so you think, well, most of my building's going to last. The problem is that can't be realistic, because otherwise we wouldn't have to have all the warning here that connected to these passages. So, and I think, we, this is passages we didn't get to last time because we ran out of time, but I think 2 John 8 is a really good parallel passage to kind of give an idea, as, as John is really talking about a specific issue, but he refers back to reward, and he says this, watch yourselves, um, in other words, uh, and that takes in really a very broad path, uh, labor, motive, you know, uh, conduct, ministry, watch yourself in all these areas, watch your motive, watch your your labor, watch your conduct, watch your ministry, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. So John's warning, hey, listen, it's possible, it's possible to build something and not receive a reward for it. Be, be careful about that. Don't waste your time on wood, hay, and straw. Paul warns the church of Colossae, same way, in Colossians 2.18, he says, let no one, here it is, keep defrauding you of your prize. By delighting in self-abasement and worship of the angels and taking his stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Pause right there. Here Paul, you know, is, really points out the principle that you can be talked into doing something that's worthless. You can be talked into doing something by someone uh, who sows discord, by someone who's a legalist, whatever, uh, that will have no reward because it's worthless. You can be talked into that. Wood, hay, straw used for building material from conduct that's fleshly, worldly, legalistic, based on worldly wisdom. Listen, those things will not last the test. And like the rest of Colossians 19 tells us, you lose the prize you could have had if you're not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with growth which is from God. So, very important passage from Paul in Colossians. It says, listen, keep watch. You can be talked into doing stuff that will give you no reward. All right? Now, look back at verse 15, if you would, 1 Corinthians 3. If any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So he may lose nearly everything, just like a house fire where you walk away with your clothes on your back. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? That's a great passage there at the end, Paul just reminds them of. Listen, you're his. You're building his building. Don't forget that, okay? You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body, which is the Lord's, okay? You belong to him. You're building his building. So make sure you're using your life up, then, in the best possible way. It's why Paul takes so much time with this. Make sure you're laboring hard and selflessly in the planting of seeds and the, of the gospel and watering of those plants in teaching sound doctrine. 
You know, and as Jim was able to lead somebody to the Lord, many of you have had this experience, as I have, where you've given the gospel and a presentation of the gospel and an offer to receive Christ, and they did not accept it. But you still did that, right? You still shone the sun on that green fruit, and you allowed some exposure to the gospel. You planted that seed, didn't you? And the Lord gives, uh, gives the harvest of that seed. And it lets it grow and waters and all of those things. So make sure you're diligently doing that. Make sure your motives are pure uh, in whatever it is that you do, simply and completely and for the unselfish love of the glory of God. And that, that requires a check from time to time. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this effort. It requires a lot. Some of you are very much involved here. You have so many responsibilities. Check yourself constantly. Why am I doing this? What's the motive? You want to lay up with all that labor, beloved, a house that's going to be worthy of the one you're building on the foundation you're building on. Make sure your daily conduct is holy and righteous and obedient to the Lord, bringing flesh into submission. Make sure your life in your ministry and your service is spiritually beneficial and faithful and long-suffering and patient, even when it gets hard and diligent. Make sure you're bringing those factors there because you're building with material. And in that way, you're building what is appropriate for God's building, for God's temple. Because don't forget, that's who you are. That's your reality, Paul says. Isn't that a great thought? As an individual, you are the temple of God. You knew that, right? We've seen that numerous times. You are the temple of God. That's your reality. You're building his building. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul will talk about it as he talks about purity in the healthy church as we get there. And he's going to say the same thing and as he talks about things that can be done in the body. He says basically the same thing. 1 Corinthians 6 uh, and verse 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now he's talking about a different topic. He's talking about purity in the church, a healthy church, and what can be done uh, opposite of that in the body. But he says the same thing. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So Listen, Paul continues this theme. He helps us remember who we are and what we're building and who it belongs to. And so in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? So you're a temple, present, active, indicative. He dwell, it dwells in you. That's your reality as well, present, active, indicative. You're a temple. He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. All those things are your reality and those two verbs really set us up for this next warning that comes in verse 17. So look there if you would. And it, this is a reference to unbelievers because it is talking not about builders, which Paul is focusing on here for uh, this Corinthian church, those who are building something, but those who don't build anything, but instead tear them down. So Paul says this, verse 17, look there if you would. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. So this passage really has unbelievers in view. Uh, they can be outside the church and they can be inside the church. Uh, but they destroy what believers are doing. And there appears to be an application to the corporate body as well as the individual believer. And if you think about all these believers together, you know, building a spiritual house that God will someday judge and, and bring a reward for what's left, it's not hard to understand that he's pretty jealous about the corporate body as well. For the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are. That's the last part of verse 17. In the Old Testament, what, what could happen to somebody who went into the Holy of Holies? Do you remember? They could pay for it with their life, right? If you want to make an offering and you were unclean, you could be killed. And the Lord was very clear about that in Leviticus and Numbers. You can read through that. And you will if you're reading through the Bible in a year. But remember Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus 10. I'll just use this as a quick example uh, and just read it to you. And you can, can kind of see the jealousy the Lord has for the holiness of his temple, especially the last 
Uh, that very last, verse 3, which we'll get to. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on them. Now they're serving as priests and they're coming in, they're going to put, uh, they're gonna put fire on, on the incense altar there inside the, tip, inside the tabernacle. And uh, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord. So they mixed up something the Lord hadn't prescribed for them to put in there, uh, something they wanted to do, some other, uh, uh, you know, maybe this will smell better. I don't know. I'm not sure what they were thinking. But anyway, uh, they'd been drinking, so it's hard to know exactly what they'd been thinking. Which he'd not commanded them. Verse 2, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then this particular place is where I want you to mark. Okay, then Moses said, uh, to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, now mark this, by those who come near me, I'll be treated as holy, and before all the people, I'll be honored. So God gave all of his people specific instruction. Uh, his tabernacle and later the temple, uh, they're holy, don't defile them. He said over and over again, the high priest only went in once a year, and only after a whole bunch of steps to make sure he did what the Lord had commanded. And if he went in there and his life wasn't right, he'd die on the spot. And a rope that was around his waist for that particular purpose uh, then would be used to pull him out because nobody else is going to be able to go in there and retrieve him. So the Lord's pretty jealous about the, the holiness of his tabernacle and later his temple. Now, think about that now. It's just this little passage is easy to pass over. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that's what you are, back in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verse 17. Think about that in the light of what Paul just said to the Corinthian believers about being the temple of God and holiness. And they and all believers, by virtue of the death of Christ on the cross, are forever delivered from God's wrath and in a position of holiness. And let me ask you a question. Do you think God is less jealous of his spiritual house than he was of his earthly one? Do you? No. Is he less jealous of his spiritual temple, the redeemed, than he was of his tabernacle made with animal skins or the temple made with stone? No, he's not. Because they both house the same thing. God is more jealous of the purity of the church. And even Paul uh, said that Christ came, Ephesians 5, 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but she would be holy and blameless. God wants a pure church. He doesn't look kindly on anybody who comes against his church to defile it or destroy it. Somebody who comes along and tries to undo what God's done. Somebody who comes along and tries to hinder the work that God is doing in the church. Somebody who comes along and tries to hinder believers who are building a spiritual house, sets himself in a position to be destroyed by God. That's the point I think Paul's making. Because that's how high he values the house that's being built. That's how high he values the purity of the church. So, beloved, that's Paul's first instruction on the judgment seat of Christ. And there's going to come a day of judgment and then reward. And it's going to come perhaps right after Jesus catches us away. So there won't be any time for checking things out right before he comes. There won't be anything, any time to straighten stuff out after you're gone. Okay? The day is at hand right now. It will come quickly. And here's the question. If it happened today... What would the sum of your life be? Because all the sum of your life is the spiritual building. It'll all be put to a test. What will all the building you've done and been doing since salvation amount to? I trust you'll have some crowns. Perhaps you've been faithful in a little that you had and God will put you in charge of a lot. But maybe you're wondering what you're going to do with a crown. Or a whole bunch of crowns perhaps that you may have, whatever the case may be. You know, a curio cabinet and, you know, in eternity with a hutch with locking doors. Hey, look at my crowns, but don't touch any of them. Or, you know, uh, how many crowns do you have? You know, let's compare. I don't think so. Uh, I think Revelation gives us as, as, be as best a clip, if you will, a snapshot of what's going to happen as, 
as um, any passage does. Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. Now, here's the thing. There's a couple of ways the Lord's going to reward you, okay, that are separate from crowns. Uh, certainly what you laid up in heaven through giving, think about this, will perhaps be yours to live in. That's laying up a foundation for the future. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says. So giving faithfully, giving materially faithfully, that lays up for you in heaven something that is eternal. The position that you earned, certainly from Luke, by being faithful in a little, will be uh, perhaps a bigger job for you to do uh, for all eternity for the Lord, certainly. The way you managed hard times, which made God look marvelous on earth, will give you an opportunity to make him look marvelous in heaven in a way you could never have done before without managing the hard times in the way that glorified him here. So there's a number of ways the Lord uh, rewards us, but certainly uh, we know crowns are mentioned. Five crowns, imperishable, righteousness, imperishable crown, righteousness crown, uh, rejoicing crown, glory crown, and uh, the crown of life. Those five crowns, uh, we see mentioned in Scripture. They align very well in, in their descriptions with what we looked at earlier in the four things the Lord judges. But crowns are mentioned in Revelation 4.4. And in Revelation 4.4, it says this, Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now, there's a lot of discussion about who this is, but we looked at this in Revelation, and I gave you a whole bunch of cross-references, Which so I think if you were here, you remember. These guys likely represent the church. A couple of reasons why, all right? They're ruling with Christ, or they're on a throne, but not the main throne. Uh, they are clothed in the garment of the redeemed, washed uh, white as snow, so it's likely these are, uh, this is the church. They have crowns on their heads, and we understand that crowns are given as a reward. So it's likely these are representatives of the church in heaven. And verses 9 and 10 tell us what they do with them. So Revelation 4, 9 says this, And when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and to him who lives forever and ever. So there's this, this uh, background of heaven. And we talked about this in our study in Revelation, which is this marvelous praise to the Lord, always in your ears. Uh, glory, honor, uh, power, exaltation, all those things in song coming to our ears all the time. And every time uh, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sets on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders uh, will mark this, fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. So here's the issue. If we understand that correctly then, that's the church casting its crowns at the feet of Christ. As we think about this judgment seat of Christ that Paul just went through, and as we understand the reward that comes along with it, isn't that something you long to do? If you really think about it, and there's a lot of stuff you want to accomplish in this life, and the Lord knows you need those things, according to Matthew 6. You've got to provide you know, for your family. You have to have a job. You've got to do... The Lord knows you need these things. Seek his kingdom, though, and his righteousness first, and he takes care of all the rest of those things. But listen, when it comes right down to it, and the sum of your life is over, either the Lord has come and got us, or your life is done, and you're done building. Okay, and then that test comes, and all that's left then you're rewarded for. Isn't this something you'd long to do? To fall at Jesus' feet and worship him, and offer him anything you could have accomplished in this life? And I make that... I emphasize that. Anything you could have accomplished. See, because right now you still have the, the, the wherewithal to impact it. Because you have the same building material that everyone else does. You can build with gold and silver and costly stone. Or you can build with wood and hay and straw. And you're making those choices even right now while we sit here. And certainly all throughout the course of your life as a believer. But 
may I proffer this to you? There's going to come a day where this is all that's going to matter to you. Beyond everything else that was important to you now. This eternal state and what's remaining after your time on earth is all that's going to matter. And then be able to cast those things before the Lord's feet. So I say this to you. Pattern your life from this point on in such a way that you're going to have a crown or more for this time. Okay? Because it's coming. It's secure in your future. That date's already set. The Lord knows when it is. Okay? So that you'll be able to show the Lord that you love him through your faithful service. And you'll be able to show the Lord that you labored for the gospel and for discipleship first and foremost. Because you'll have a crown that shows that you did that. And you're going to be able to show the Lord your motives were pure. And you're going to be able to give that to the Lord. To show that your conduct on a daily basis reflected in practical holiness, your positional holiness. And to show the ministry you did in your spiritual giftedness with diligence and fervency, you're going to have that crown to just cast before the Lord. Because he accomplished that in your life. And you can do that, see. Now, as long as you are living here in this flesh, you can accomplish that. And perhaps the other reason that you may slide those crowns across that portion of the sea of glass to the base of his throne is just in praise and adoration and thankfulness in some way that you can give something that shows the Lord how precious to you he is. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? You think back over your life, perhaps, think about, oh, since you've been saved, some of you have been saved a long time, and it's hard to even remember back then. I'm glad the Lord keeps track, although for some of the issues, I, I wish he, he would, would be more forgetful. But the house is there, you know, you built it, and you threw a wing on here, and a wing on there, and perhaps a second story or a third, and all those things are building material, see? And the Lord's going to test all of that. Now, on that wonderful note, really perhaps... Perhaps the pinnacle of the teaching on unity, okay, because Paul's going to move on to some other things. But perhaps that's the pinnacle on the teaching of unity. As I told you, he brought this reward issue to play, perhaps even to appeal to the, the most infantile of believers there at Corinth. Listen, there's going to come a day of reward. You need to pay attention. So perhaps the pinnacle, uh, let's look at verses 18 through 23, and really get a foothold, if you will, on, on uh, as Paul really, I'll just use my own terms, starts back down the other side on his way to his next topic. And that really kind of seems how the letter flows. Paul's hit this pinnacle, this marvelous thing that he's talked about, this rewards and all of that, and he's really kind of walking down, if you will, to the next uh, topic, and he's going to go from there. But look, uh, that's really what it feels like to me, if you will. Um, look at 1 Corinthians 3, 18, if you would. And we'll, we'll read that together and get as far as we can. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Verse 20, And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Verse 21, So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Verse 22, Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. And you kind of get that sense, don't you, that kind of Paul is kind of wrapping up, beginning to wrap up his thoughts. So he's going to touch uh, back on a few things here as we get into chapter 4. But as the Corinthians really process all this previous stuff, as we know, old habits die hard. Uh, they have been fleshly for a very long time, which is the, one of the root causes of the problems that they have in division. He said if you have division, you're just fleshly. 
And uh, remember, worldly wisdom is also an issue that he brought to task. He's going to come back here and, and look at it again. They've been holding on to worldly wisdom for so long. Paul revisits some of these topics. And some of you are teachers, and you know why you have to review some uh, because it's important that the students remember, and obviously the Holy Spirit wants unity at this Corinthian church and uh, in all churches marked by believers. So he is dealing with this disease of division, and he has given us the cause and the symptoms and, and the cure already, and he's going to go and add a few things here, and you're going to pick them up easily, and he's going to summarize a few things he's already said. And I love this about Paul, and I try to model this in my teaching. Paul illustrates well for us the value of summarizing what's already been said. Paul does this over and over. Let's look at verse 18, and we'll get started as far as we can go. Verse 18. Let no man deceive himself. And we see that often in Scripture, that phrase right there. Let no man deceive himself. Uh, it's an important one because it obviously is going on. As it relates to what you've built, as it relates to what you're currently doing, as it relates to how you, what you're bringing to the ministry that you're doing, it's easy to be deceived, self-deceived. Let no man see, deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Now, once again, he brings this problem of human wisdom as a factor in division to task. Uh, it must be important. It must be uh, one of those chronic factors in the church, or Paul wouldn't keep revisiting it. And I think that as we talk about it, you'll see uh, certainly that is the case. And again, Paul says, let no man deceive himself. Uh, to deceive is, is, a, is a present active imperative verb. If you want to fix this issue, stop. Here it is, continually deceiving yourself about this issue of wisdom. Okay? Exapatao, to, to continually deceive. Stop continually deceiving yourself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. Now, in other words, the same issue that he talked about with them before. If there's going to be unity in the church, you're going to have to stop deceiving yourself about this area of human wisdom. Paul says, in essence, the church doesn't need your opinion. And these will relate in principle uh, to the principles that govern the church in the areas of salvation and knowledge and conduct of the Christian life. So, obviously, we need people who are wise in the world's disciplines. We need those people uh, who are believers to be factors in all the things that uh, go on. But here Paul is particularly talking about, listen, as we think about these uh, principles of salvation, principles of the knowledge of God, principles of the conduct of the Christian life, uh, those are the things that divide the church. When people begin to get their opinion or their experience in the world and set that up then as the authority in the areas of spiritual life, that's when you have problems. You bring in what you know from the world, and you, this is how we should conduct ourselves. This is what we're going to do, okay? The church has to create an atmosphere, then, in which the Word of God is honored and in which the Word of God is submitted to. Exactly what it says, that's what we do. We don't make any exceptions about that. If it says one thing about how we conduct ourselves, that's how we have to conduct ourselves. If it says something about how this has to be done, then that's how it's supposed to be done. And we don't get to bring human wisdom to bear and kind of manipulate those things to make it seem better or work better or how we've experienced it, that it could be better. Okay? I'll back there again, if, if you would. Verse 18. If any man thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And here's the thing. If in the church everybody submits to the Word of God, there's no basis for disunity, Right? Because there's one common controlling authority. It's when human opinion rises to the top that you have continuing problems. See? And here's the thing. He says uh, you must become foolish. That's the Greek adjective moros, from where we get our word moron. So here's the thing. Paul says if you think you're smart in this age, you're really smart when you realize you have to become a moron in the eyes of human wisdom. That's when you're really smart. Okay? 
Because that's true wisdom. He continues to say this because that's the bad habit of churches, and certainly here in Corinth, to elevate what they brought with them above what's written in the Word. Paul says, Beloved, when you realize that worldly wisdom doesn't know anything that matters in terms of salvation and the knowledge of God and the principles of spiritual life, and you submit yourself to the Word of God, you're wise. That's when you're really wise. And it's the issue of intellectual pride. That's the issue. And it plagued the church in Paul's time. It plagues the church in modern times. Intellectual pride is always the guy uh, who has to argue on the other side of the discussion so it's equally presented, okay? That's that guy, all right? Don't be that guy. They can never sit back and just be content with what the Word of God says. You've got to argue on the other side, okay? That's the person that always has to criticize and always has to find fault. Okay, and figure out somewhere what you're doing, that you're doing something wrong. And never ceases to cause problems in the church. What the scripture says is sufficient. Paul is so convinced that intellectual pride is at the root of division, he brings it up again and again and again. In fact, he says in Colossians, this is probably the, the benchmark for intellectual pride and in, in the place that it has uh, inside the church. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and all authority. Now it seems obvious enough, but what good is human wisdom going to do when you start applying it to God's kingdom? No good at all. Human wisdom isn't sufficient for your life either, okay? And I'll just throw that in there. If you have a problem in your home, with your kids or, or with your spouse, and you turn to the principles of psychology instead of the Word of God, you have really messed it up then. Okay? And if you've got a problem in your life, and you go to a psychiatrist instead of the Holy Spirit, you've blown it. Okay? And if you're trying to solve a problem of ethics or a problem of behavior or morality in your business, and you're looking to what is expedient, what some worldly attorney says is the best thing to do, instead of what the Word of God says, you've completely messed it up then. Okay? So it doesn't have a place, worldly wisdom, as it relates to how a believer lives. Traditions of men really describe psychiatry, doesn't it? And the study of psychology. It's based on the traditions of men, for the most part. Later in Colossians 3, verse 10, Paul says to them, you have put on the new self. This is so great. This is your reality. You've put on the new self, who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You're being renewed to a true knowledge in the image of the one who made you. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Just this. You have real knowledge if you've been born again. And wisdom, of course, is knowledge applied. You have true knowledge and you apply that in, in wisdom. And Paul says it doesn't matter what your backstory is, okay? And he just goes through one. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not exhaustive. Uh, you could be, uh, you know, Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, Scythian, slave, and free man. Christ is all and in all. If you've come to faith, it applies to you, okay? It doesn't matter what your experience has been in the matters of salvation and the knowledge of God and the principles of Christian living. That's Paul's point. Christ is all and in all. Use knowledge that's being renewed in you to make your choices. Use knowledge that's being renewed in you to deal with these issues in the church. That's why Paul says here, you don't need human wisdom. And he brings it back over, over and over again. God says, let any such man renounce his own wisdom in order that he may receive the wisdom of God. And you know, that's not a new concept. Did you know that? I mean, we must be empty in order to be filled. 
right? Um, we have to renounce our own righteousness in order to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We must renounce our own strength in order to be strong, renounce our own wisdom in order to be wise. That's a universal law, perfectly reasonable from the scriptures, okay? Now Paul backs up uh, what he just said with two passages from the Old Testament, very like Paul to do this. He wants them to know, listen, I'm not telling you something new. I'm telling you something old, something God has said from the beginning. Look at verse 19, if you would. 1 Corinthians 3, 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Now that's, pretty, that's a pretty direct statement. The wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. No doubt, it could have made some people in Corinth mad, uh, but he is repeating what he said to them earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Remember that? Where's the wise man, he said? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 25, 29, and if you would look there, I'm not going to put a slide up there um, for 1 Corinthians uh, 20, if you would. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 25. Just flip back over two pages. I'm going to be there just for a moment, and you can come back. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 20, where's the wise man? Nowhere. Where's the scribe? Nowhere. Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now look at verse 25 of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, verse 26, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Look around you, Paul says, at the church. You're not going to find a lot of the leaders of the age, and a lot of the intellect of the age, and all those kinds of things who've come to faith, who established this church. It wasn't those folks, not many of those folks. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Verse 28, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. And that's great. That is people just like you and just like me, listen, we didn't have a bunch of position. We weren't striving for a bunch of position. He took the base things. He took the foolish things. He took the things that were not strong and made them important. And those things that were, according to the world, unimportant. So remember where you came from, Paul says. Not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty or noble, according to the flesh. So be clear, Paul says, this is what God thinks about your private sector. Okay? Your private experience in matters of the gospel and the knowledge of God, and the principles of conduct as a believer, he doesn't need it. Now, hold your finger here, flip back over, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19. For the wisdom of this world, he says, is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Now there, Paul's just quoting Job chapter 5, verse 13. I'll put it up there. <clears throat> Maybe not. <laughs> Captures the wise in their own shrewdness, and the advice of the cunning is quickly thwarted. That's what Job, Job chapter 5, verse 13 says. Now, Paul's just quoting that. Listen, he's the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. The wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. And then he moves on. Look at verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 20. He says, and again, the, no, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. And there he's quoting Psalm 94, 11, where he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of men, that they are mere breath. So there's the Lord's evaluation. And, of course, Paul adds some dynamic to this cure for division. If you just realize, Paul says, that as it relates to salvation, the knowledge of God, and the principles of Christian living, apart from the revelation of God, you don't know anything about any of those things. That's the point. And if you also submit to the revelation of the Word of God, where's the division? There isn't any. See, There isn't any. 
So then Paul's next review statement is this. So then let no one boast in men. And why would you? Right? Let no one boast in men. And Paul's pointing back to what he, he just said. Since human wisdom is foolish, let no one boast in men. Uh, since the reasoning of the wise as it relates to salvation and the knowledge of God and the principles of godly living are useless, let no one boast in men. He, Paul can go all the way back through his rebuke, all the way to the beginning, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Look there if you would. 1 Corinthians 3, 5. He says, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, he says, and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither then the one who plants is anything, or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the, the growth. So, let no man boast in men. See? Wherever he lands, see, in his previous instruction, he can just say, so then no man boast in men. Another dynamic for the cure of division. There shouldn't be division as it relates to men. That's the problem in Corinth. A preference issue between the differences and what the pastors had, uh, were doing or what they, uh, they had experienced before. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So let no man boast in men, Paul says in verse 21. Neither the one who planted nor the one who waters. We're not anything. Don't boast in men. And then just like he did at the beginning of chapter 1, verse 4, Look there if you would. You've still got your finger there. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 4. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech, all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you were not lacking in any gift, but eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He reminds them of the benefits of being a saint. Way back at the beginning, this is who you are. This is your identity. Paul does it again. Chapter 3, verse 21, he says this. For all things belong to you. Don't let anybody boast in men. All things belong to you, he said. A marvelous benefit of being a believer. Did you catch that? Maybe you were thinking, he can't mean everything. I mean, it's not possible, right? But yes, he does. If he didn't mean everything, he would have said some things belong to you. Right? And instead he said, all things belong to you. God knows which words to use. Remember from Romans 8, verse 16, where you, uh, we were studying and we were told that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and what? Fellow heirs with Christ. All things belong to you, beloved. You're fellow heirs with Christ. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things, all things, they're all ours, see, for our benefit. When he says all things, that's exactly what he's saying. Why are you squabbling about this type of stuff? You've got a mandate. You're supposed to be doing these certain things. You're going to be judged for uh, the time that you spent doing it. Don't boast to men. Uh, don't have division concerning these things. All things belong to you. Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us some things? All things. If God gave us the greater, he will certainly give us everything else, which is the lesser. Perhaps you're thinking, even pain and hard times? Yep, even those. All things belong to you. 1 Corinthians 4.15, for all things are for your sakes. Even hard things, right? So that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Whatever it is, hard times, difficult times, health issues, money issues, all those things belong to you. 
The richness of Christ belongs to you. All of that belongs to you. All things are yours. Understand your position. That writer of Hebrews says it this way. You have put all things into subjection under his feet. Who's that? Christ. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So is it some things or all things? It's all things, and you're fellow heirs with Christ, so it's all yours. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Yeah, now there's some stuff in the world that doesn't seem to be subjected. We don't get to see it, but don't make any mistake. But we do see him who was made for, for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he may might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and you are joint heirs with Christ. Okay, so understand who you are in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. All things are yours, and all things are going to be brought under subjection, even though they don't appear to be right now. And some of them may not be completely prepared for you yet. Revelation 21.5 says they will be. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, catch this, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write these words for they're faithful and true. And then he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I'll give to the one who thirsts from the springs of water of life without cost. Mark this. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Some things are yours, beloved, right? All things are yours. See. Understand the mandate you have in the church. Understand what your real job is. Understand, Paul says, listen, division shouldn't be there. Why? Because it's not, Christ is not divided. It's not part of what, who you are as a believer. Put them aside, he says. I'm making all things new. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he'll be my son. So Paul can say as a benefit of being a saint, all things belong to you. As he moves away from this marvelous issue of unity in the church, as he moves away from this teaching, uh, dealing with the division, this disease of division in the church, he says, listen, all things belong to you. Don't boast of men. Understand your position. And why Paul uses it in this context and the scope of what belongs to you, we're going to look at next week because we are completely out of time. But I just want you to catch just a little bit of a vision of all of this, beloved. Listen, when the church understands this, and it's important, obviously, because Paul brought it to the attention of a Corinthian church, mired in division and mired in problems between people and all of the things and complaining and backbiting and gossiping and all the things that are going to go on, everything we're going to talk about, immorality later on. Listen, these things were the most important things. And who you are is... Positional holiness, all of you, positionally holy. Practically holy, Paul's emphasis on those things. And we're going to move into, uh, there's just some marvelous stuff next week. I'm excited to go through it with you. The scope of what belongs to you. The scope of who you are. And why Paul uses it in this context as he moves into this next topic we're going to look at at the close of chapter 4. is going to be very encouraging to you. I encourage you not to miss. Uh, be part of the fellowship of the saints as we get together and break his word together. All right? Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you today for this time, really as a teaching time, really to understand what your word says, to make some application here. But obviously Paul is, is summarizing, he's reviewing the things that he said. And Lord, so we want to make sure that we take those to heart, that it, 
his constant referral to worldly wisdom being brought to bear inside the church as if it has something to offer, what we think we ought to do in comparison to what the scripture actually says we're to do. Lord, I pray uh, that as you take your church uh, through this, that we'll understand those applications as they may apply to each of our lives. And as we review this marvelous day in the future where you will judge all men's work and you'll test them by fire and whatever building uh, parts that were there that were built to last will stay and that will, you'll use as a base for reward. It just seems so undeserving of all that. All that's accomplished through your Holy Spirit. And yet you've indicated that's what it will be. And so, Lord, I pray that we'll give ourselves as we uh, submit our will to you to work in such a way that we may lay up those things that are eternal. Those other things that you judge us for, that you take, that you take a look at, as you even looked at the, uh, the widow, as she gave all that she had to live on in the temple. You didn't reprove her for uh, giving too much. You, you just said uh, that um, many give uh, not out of their need. And uh, those things, of course, are wood, hay, and stubble. Many give in their need. And those are the things that you recognize. And so, Lord, even in giving of little, you have marked that and established even this widow as one who will forever be remembered for her generosity. I pray that your church would be that way and, and that we'll find that as we do the little tasks you've given us in a very faithful way that someday we'll recognize that you were watching closely. And that little group that you have and that little Sunday school class or those little kids that you're taking care of or or whatever it is that the Lord watches very closely, and someday we'll say, you've been faithful in very little here. Uh, take charge of ten cities. Your words, Father. So Lord, I pray that we'll, we'll, be, we'll recognize that th this is an area where we have opportunity to lay up, and we'll never have opportunity to change it once it's done. So once again, our priorities, Father, will be arranged in such a way that they may bring honor to uh, your Son, whom we long to adore whom someday will come before and cast whatever reward we have at his feet. Lord, help us to prepare ourselves for that day now. And Father, I pray that uh, as we go from here, I pray that uh, we'll be witnesses, giving ourselves for the primary purpose that we were left here, the giving out of the gospel, planting the gospel seed and the watering. And Lord, as you give harvest, uh, Lord, we just give you glory. Father, as we come back this evening for John's teaching, I pray that you will uh, give him wisdom as he brings a word to us. Help us be encouraged in the fellowship together, in the testimony time, in the singing, and also in the teaching of your word. We're grateful for these things, and we give you praise today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.